Alright, so let's bring our uh, session back into our open session back in. And uh, let's see where we are. Items. So the second item is our consent agenda is approval of the minutes. Um, I move approval with a comment. Okay. I would just like to comment that I appreciated, and this is for Susanna and Marla, who's no longer here, but I appreciated that all the information that was in the minutes with regard to the public comments particularly because that's helpful to me to see the people who are here and see it in the minutes and know um, their concerns and who they represent. But I move with that <coughs> approval of the minutes. I'll second it. All right. All in favor? Aye. 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 All right. Next item. So, uh, employee engagement. some dates. The last full engagement we did, which measures engagement all the way down to the individual department level, was done about a year ago, June of 14. And then last December, we did a pulse check, which is engagement light, which measures engagement levels at the division level and above. Uh, we decided not to do a survey in June 15 to save money. And also research shows that you really don't need to do it every single year. Every two years is fine. Uh, we have a pulse check that is underway now. We have about, a, I think, a 16% response rate. And in May of next year, we'll have the next full employment engagement survey, which also includes provider engagement as well. Okay? So if we look at 2014 scores, Looking at annual survey and pulse check, overall engagement indicator remains about the same. Small difference, but it's insignificant in terms of statistical significance. Organizational domain, which is a measure of how people feel about the overall organization and how engaged they are with the overall engagement in organization, is about the same. Again, there's a minus, but it's very small. A manager domain, which is a measure of employees' feelings about their manager and how engaged they are with their manager and how supportive they feel their manager is and how helpful their manager is, and that's about the same. Employee domain, which is a measure of how they feel about their co-workers and are they working well together and helpful, uh, that actually increased and that is a statistically significant difference, so we're seeing some gains there in a short amount of time, so that's pretty good. Um, the next looks at the overall summary of employee engagement through the years. And when we began this in 2009, our response rate was 41%. And last year, the last full engagement was 83%. So doubled. People 
people are engaged in the engagement, so to speak. Look at the overall score. Uh, we started at 56.7. In the years of 13 and 14, we brought in a new vendor with better science behind the engagement process and measures. Uh, and if I do a little interpolation, the scores are around 70 on both 2013 and 2014. So again, we're seeing an increase over time there. <clears throat> percentile rankings, which is how people compare with each other. We were in the first percentile, which is not good. That's like bottom. Over time, we've climbed to the 22nd percentile. And in fact, 2014 was notable because a lot of the organizations that were compared to in our normative data, normative sample, went down in terms of the percentile. We actually went up. Action planning, when we began it in 2009, was rather loose. I don't think it was really fostered that much. It wasn't here, so I don't know. But in 2014, action planning was, was very much emphasized by the organization. Plus, the new vendors had better methods of doing action planning, better methods of linking it, better research in between to determine which actions were more helpful than others. Um, triage is a concept that I brought over from my work at Johnson & Johnson. And it was really taking a look at all the scores, putting them in a bell curve, and then making some decisions about where to spend the most time. So those on the extreme left, which were their poor performers, Olay had consultants that would work with them specifically in terms of team development, leadership development, conflict, action planning, all that kind of stuff to help them improve their scores. And we saw some dramatic differences between those two years. And we continue to do that in 2014. And that's, uh, that's about it. We talked about triage. And um, if we look at nursing and clinical support division between annual survey and post-check, they essentially pretty much stay the same. Okay? Questions? I have a question. Yes. Does your new vendor allow for the data to be sliced by gender and by ethnicity and yes. by generation? Yes. So, I think that in order for us to do this work correctly, the best practice that I've seen in many organizations is to try and look at distinctly how we're doing with those different um, employee groups. And again, um, I'm probably going to be seen as you know, harping on the diversity issues that I've discussed before. But I just would like from here forward that any report about staffing regarding perceptions of the quality of work life be, you know, teased out a little bit more because those, we want to look at whether or not there are some areas where staff might not feel engaged and look at why that might be happening. Right. So if you do with everybody, you know, that's... Actually, we have done that already. It was in a previous report that I had ready to, to present to the board. Uh, but we were not able to. And we did find that there really weren't any differences between length, between um, socioeconomic status, between race, between any any way you look at it, there really weren't any differences. I don't know if it's possible. Okay. Oh,
we, we have done uh, the analysis and nothing really stands out in terms of anything. But I'd be happy to present that data yeah, to you at another point. Okay. And in, in subsequent presentations on engagement, uh, we will make sure we have that for you. Great. That would be terrific. Thank you. Other questions? I thought, with regard to um, Trustee Hernandez's comment, even at another line on the on the first chart that just said um, results are are uh, impact or results have um, any relationship to to employee. Uh, Diversity is the word I want, but just another line that would where where you would just tell us if there was if these mm -hmm. results were right. related or if there was something that you had found any findings right. related to diversity with regard to um, the years. I mean something that just provided it a snapshot of it would be would be helpful. Sure. And I, I, my question was, what can you explain again what percentile is? I, I didn't really. Percentile means if you're at the 60th percentile on a measure, let's say it's a measure of intelligence, that means that out of all the people that have been tested on this instrument, you are higher than 59%. It also means that 39% um, have scored higher than you. So it's kind of a relative ranking of your standing compared to people in your normative. So when you say 22%, it would be the 22% of nurses at Highland Hospital are reporting this similar Well, this is 22% of all the employees. Okay, all the employees. We had 22%. We were in the 22nd percentile. So that was all the employees that were serving. What that okay. means is that out of all of the hospitals in our normative group, uh, we are better than 21%. But it also means that... Um, there's a whole bunch of other hospitals that score better than this. The thing to look at is that we're making good progress over the years as we go along. We started at one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And my, my final question is, with regard to the first chart, do 2013 2014 include uh, the other sites, include San Leandro and, and Alameda Hospital? I don't staff? believe so. So we haven't had, right. So we haven't had those um, employee engagement. We haven't done a survey there. Okay. Thanks. Now I, I think the 2014 included San Leandro. Did not include Alameda because we didn't have it. Craig, um, when we saw the engagement survey uh, back in January of 2014, it's on the tracking form. We had seen low scores or lower scores in uh, support services and clinical support. At the time, we had asked and we were told that you were going to do deeper dive focus groups to figure out what, why it was that, that those employees were less engaged. But you're saying now, based on the pulse check, that they're back up. So right. it, it would be great just to celebrate our success to know what, what did we do differently uh, to make those employees happier. Uh, to, to get those I, I, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's an increased organizational focus on the importance of engagement, and there's a whole lot of correlates between organization engagement and organization effectiveness. Um, that's one. 
I think it's, uh, it's the ability to be able to look at the data carefully and determine where exactly we should intervene and what kind of intervention we should take. So I think it's a real intense focus on, on those particular groups and those scores. And each group is different in terms of what it takes to intervene. I was wondering if there's something more tangible, like, you know, that copier never worked, and they got us a new copier, and now I'm happy. Well, you know what? A, a lot of you have some input in the back. Yeah. Come on up. We implemented uh, operations councils that involve the employees on a weekly basis. And just like you said with the copier broken, those are called uh, stoplight reports. Mm -hmm. So weekly, we take uh, employee feedback of what's not working. And just like the SF examiner used to have it, we'd say, what are we doing to fix it, and when's it going to be fixed? That's good. That's that's great to hear. That's the sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks. One example of something that, um, that happened over, over time is in the, um, in the 2013 report, we had, um, we had a, a group in, actually in housekeeping, two groups that were, that were in, the, um, in, the, in the third category that, that needed a, a lot of support. And when we, when we did the, uh, the 2014 report, both, both of those organizations had moved to the first category. So, so I met with them and asked them what they did. And, um, and they're fairly simple things. They started having regular staff meetings. When there were issues in the department, they had conversations with the employees and considered their recommendations. They, um, you know, they had, you know, a couple of, of small, small parties and 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 gave them gave everyone T-shirts, you know, that celebrated the organization. It didn't cost much, but everybody, but everybody was was engaged. And they they did a lot of small things like that, but it changed the culture of that organization. Rocket science. Yes. <laughs> Simple stuff. Um, I have a question about the. Um, designation of clinical and nursing staff here. Uh, can you tell me if there's any groups of employees that did not get the engagement survey? No, everybody got it. Everybody got it. Okay, so where's the admin staff? I'm a little confused. It's clinical and then nursing. Is that... Well, that was just an example of a couple of groups. Oh. That's all that was. Oh. That was just a couple of groups. And that was an example. Okay. Yeah. All right. But everybody is surveyed, including physicians and, and MAs and all that. It's just, the physicians have their own engagement survey, but it will be done this time at the same time. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Let's move on to the status report on fiscal year 2016 staffing reductions. Okay, I'll just make a, um, a couple of introductory Comments. Um, this was a this was a, a difficult process um, in in many ways that um, took place over a period of about of about three months from the time that we first um, determined where we needed to make changes um, to the to the point that the changes had had happened. Um, 
But so I will have Dick Dodson, our director of labor relations, um, tell you where we where we ended up. But we were we were able to place um, most of the employees that wanted to stay with the organization. Meeting everyone. Meeting everyone. So. Uh, there are really uh, uh, several reasons to uh, lay people off and everybody thinks, well, we're going to save money, that's why you lay them off. But you also have efficiency uh, reasons. And, and that, you know, so we, in one instance, for example, uh, a director retires. The director has a secretary. There's nothing more for the secretary to do. And whether you're making $10 million a year or losing $10 million a year, that dynamic doesn't change. And so, you know, you need to reallocate that, that resource. Um, and it, it, it helps us uh, respond effectively to rapidly changing uh, world in healthcare. Um, so the workforce planning process is, uh, starts with the managers preparing a justification for the layoffs, and it's about how many layoffs and where they're going to be, the rationale, the story behind the layoffs, the history, uh, how the remaining work is going to get done, and the savings or efficiency that are going to be achieved. And none of those justifications I send to union representatives. Uh, we have meetings in the unions for 30 days. Uh, we answer questions about the justifications, bring the managers in to answer more questions. Um, we plan the process for reductions. Uh, are we going to offer severance? Who are we going to offer severance to? Uh, what are the letters going to look like? Uh, we discuss alternatives to layoffs and bumping. That's part, part, part of that uh, discussion about severance. And we search for alternate uh, jobs to the affected employees, for the vacancies. Uh, we bump employees to vacancies in the same title, the positions held by a senior employee in the same title. And all of that is, is, is part of the discussion with the unions. So um, when, once that, those discussions are done, we send 30-day layoff notices to the SCIU representative employees and 60 days for AFNIA and unrepresented employees. So we had 23 meetings with SCIU. Uh, one meeting with SCIU OHW at Alameda, we, we negotiated the settlement there. And uh, two meetings with uh, ACNIA group. And the results of all of that uh, by department, uh, you can see on this chart. Uh, so, and continuation on the next page. And then by union, so essentially we had four layoffs out of uh, a total of uh, 56 that we had planned, uh, 12 were rescinded, 17 took severance, and that includes people who took severance to save someone else's job. So we had a senior, a very senior LBM wanting to retire, she took severance, that saved the spot for LBM, the less senior LBM was getting that way off. Um, Eight people who took other AHS jobs in terms of uh, uh, vacancies. Other people bumping the vacancies 15, 15. And then two people bumped us senior employees, and four people altogether got laid off. One of which is probably going to be rehired in the next month or so. There's, there's a vacancy that that person's interviewed for. Uh, the manager likes her, she wants the job, so we think we're probably going to end up with her in the back. As long as it gets through, we have to eat dinner. Take, I like these numbers. Uh, considering where we were last spring, it's uh, they're, they're really, they're really, yeah, they're really great numbers. And I, yeah, 
Jeanette directed us that we needed to find as many people to act as possible, and we uh, helped out a lot, and we identified uh, managers uh, to interview people, and uh, sometimes twisted their arm, but we got, we got a lot of people first. At one point, we were like at three. I'm sorry. At one point, we were almost at 350 folks that might lose their position. So, what what was the magical process that allowed us to get to this number? Well, I, I wish that uh, that Dave Cox was here. Um, frankly, a large part of it was was the the great improvements that we that we made in in revenue. C collection and and a um, and the the reductions that we that we took over the last six months of the of the last fiscal year in uh in the we have an FTE committee you know we've recently you know instituted a variance committee so we so we meet meet with people every every month to make sure that we're staying that we're staying on target so. Um, I was I was very happy that we didn't have to go to that um, horrible place. Frankly, we don't have um, 350 you know people in the organization now that are not needed to provide patient care. So that would have really been um, very difficult for us. I just, uh, I wish the room was as full right now as it was in July um, to, uh, to to look at these numbers. And I just, again, I, we, I really appreciate the, your commitment to, to working with people, to meeting with the unions, to figuring out where to place people. I mean, it really shows a commitment to the employees. And, and I think it, it, it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, you guys should be really, really proud of your work. It's, it's really impressive um, to, to go, as you said, from three to four hundred to four um, is, is amazing. Um, and I know that it was a combination of capturing revenue and figuring out what was the wisest placement within the organization. And I know that things were tight and, and, and tenuous in July, and there was a lot of heated conversation. And so, um, uh, in the end, um, really, really great work. Thank you so much. Anything more to add? That's, uh, I, I can't praise you guys enough for that. Thank you. Oh, I agree with uh, with um, the chair. I think it was tremendous that we went from we had such a um, um, we were able to reduce the number of layoffs to such a, a great extent. And I would just suggest, as I saw the number of meetings, you know, that the, um, the, the forty three meetings with SEIU and. I, as I recall, the, the, the contentious discussion and the people coming in to, to um, share information and save positions. And then the board also, as, as um, Trustee Hernandez pointed out and, and Trustee DeBreeze, I mean, we were all very concerned about the finances on one hand, but about laying off staff on the other hand. So in the future, I, it would just be good if we could get this out of the way, hopefully as we talk more about board um, information and, and meetings and streamlining and sharing, we'll, we'll be able to address this earlier in the process so that we don't we don't have to go down this road in two years from now. Well, I think to add some clarity to what you're saying, I think 
if we have a better understanding of, of the process earlier on, we will be less likely to make assumptions um, or be, uh, yeah, make assumptions that may not be entirely accurate about the thought process behind it. I mean, once, once I understood, for example, the LVN situation, that it, you know, and once it sunk in, it, it started to make a little sense. And maybe if I had gotten that a little earlier, maybe seen some information throughout the industry of, of explaining how LVNs have become practically obsolete in terms of other hospital systems, it, 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 it might have been easier to digest, not on the floor, but you know, in preparation. Right. So I think that's kind of that's yeah. that's exactly my point. And even the other area where we were um, considering layoffs for some period of time, if, if if there had been some board education about these contracts that we have and how many employees are um, participate or part of the contract and and how much the contract is, etc., and, and what would happen if that contract because in, in Contracts is one example, but those things, federal, state, local contracts, can end at any time, depending on the, the funder or you know private contracts. So, if we're more aware of those things and how they affect our employees and how employees are, um, you know, how many employees are, are are funded directly by those types of um, services, then we would be better able to respond without flipping out. Um, any other comments? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, oh, Mr. Chair. Uh, I was just going to take a moment to share an anecdotal story. So on, my, on my first day that afternoon, I was uh, doing what I, what I call my getting lost and just walking around the area and uh, wandered up to one of the clinics up on the uh, fifth floor. And uh, one of the managers was walking me around, introducing the staff and introducing the one staff member who uh, might have happened to be her last day in that clinic. Uh, her position was being uh, uh, reduced from the organization, but she was bumping to a uh, vacant roll out at one of the outlying clinics. And I knew that I was going to be going to the clinic where she's going later that week. And so I said, oh, I'll, I'll see you there uh, when, I, when I come to visit. And true form, that Friday, I was out at the clinic and ran into her actually being oriented by one of her colleagues there. And, and I said, oh, I told you I'd see you again. And, and, and uh, asked her how she was doing because I got the sense that there was a bit of summerness to, to the reality, which is understandable, absolutely understandable. Um, uh, but I came to realize, at least this was at Eastmont, that a lot of the employees there started here at Highland. So there's a bit of sort of a uh, Highland alum group there. And uh, they were very happy to have me. A lot of people talked about how they had worked with her for you know, 10, 15 years ago at Highland and, and were very happy to have her on team. And, and it was welcoming her quite uh, uh, quite openly. So so that was you know kind of taking something that would have otherwise been a very... Uh, Unfortunately, a negative experience and turning into something that I thought was entirely globally positive for the organization. It was great to see that, you know, as an entree to the organization. So, I just want to share with you. Thank you. Alrighty, thanks. Thanks so much again. And we're on to our benefit plan. Good evening. So I am going to do just a brief summary of the benefits because they're not really changing dramatically. You've all seen this before. So the only thing is we have one new voluntary benefit that we're introducing. Um, open enrollment, most importantly, starts on October 19th, runs through November 25th. Um, 
we have all benefit eligible employees, which we're currently calculating. And I don't know if you recall that, but our plan eligibility is based upon a year look back. So we just finished that calculation. We also have our SAN and Perdue employees that we do the same calculation for. Their requirement is to work 30 weeks or more, or 30 hours per week or more in the look back period to be eligible. Last year, we only had 142 that were eligible. As of this afternoon, we know we have 182. So that's indicative of the fact that our SANS employees are working more hours. Um, so we're going to have about 40 more employees that will be eligible. The SANS employees are eligible for medical only and for just themselves, but it still is a cost to the organization. Um, our self-funded plan is not changing. The cost is not changing. The only tweak we did to the plan this year is we changed the emergency room copay from $50 if you're at a non-AHS facility to $75, and we changed the urgent care copay down to $15 to try to drive behavior to the urgent care versus the emergency room, because the, the differential is like 10 to 20% more cost. So that was just looking at utilization, we decided that made sense this year. And so other than that, there's no other significant change to that. And same thing with the HS Independence Plan, which is just the high deductible version of our PPO self-funded plan. Um, the big change that we're making this year is we are getting rid of Express Scripts, who is our current pharmacy provider. We are going through a company called Welldyne. Um, there's going to be significant savings, we believe, in using Welldyne as our pharmacy provider. Not only are we getting a better costs on the dispensing fee, but they have a program, not only their mail delivery, which is huge to our employees, and they run their own mail delivery service, so there's significant savings there. But the other thing that they do that is different from any other uh, pharmacy company that we've looked at is there are a number of drugs where the drug company will offer a coupon for that drug. The coupon generally is up to 30% of the cost of the drug. But our employees only pay, if it's a specialty drug, $150 copay. So if the employee only applies for that copay, they get the $150 back. But this company goes to the company every time they see one of our employees apply for it, or they see the drug, to get the other 30% and get that total coupon cost back to us. So that can be a significant amount of money. If you're, I'll give you an example. We had one employee who got the hep, new Hep C drug last year as a $90,000 cost to the organization. If we had had Express Scripts and they had done the coupon on that drug in particular, we would have redeemed that 30% in cost. So it's a significant amount of money on certain drugs. Um, we are also working in tandem with our own pharmacy, our outpatient pharmacy. Um, we're working on the 340B pricing for specialty drugs that hopefully we can drive our employees who use our services and work in our facility to get their specialty drugs. And I believe that the way we'll drive that behavior is to waive the copay because we'll save, we can save almost up to 50% of the cost of those drugs. So Welldyne will, will manage that for us on the plan side. Okay. 
Um, our base rates, this is most interesting. So last year, when we renewed with Kaiser, because this has been an ongoing battle with Kaiser, um, last year they assessed us with, as best I can describe to you, a 5% penalty, because we would not offer the Kaiser plan at the same cost as our own self-funded plan. So what they found last year is, I said to them in the meeting a year ago, that's not going to drive my employees to your plan. So this year they heeded that, and we had a 0.39%, less than 1% increase in our Kaiser rate. The other thing that they proclaimed last year was they were certain, as we took people away from Kaiser, they were going to be left with the sickest people in their plan, and we would get all the healthy people. And that did not play out, because when we looked at the Kaiser utilization, all the Kaiser utilization numbers improved across the board except for one, and that was not significant. Um, our plan is running at about a 67% loss ratio, which is an incredible ratio. We were able to decrease our posted rates by 15% this year. That number is significant as we get closer and closer to Cadillac tax. We have to have our premiums down as slow as we can so that we are not subjected to Cadillac tax. Um, we are preparing as we go forward for what we're going to do next year to start getting employees ready for that. Just jump in here. So 15% reduction in our posted rates, but right. we're not charging our employees. We're not, no, our employee contribution so that is, is still zero. Um, the reason, yeah, the reason I say the posted rates is that when somebody leaves the organization, we have to have posted rate for what we would charge for that. So if somebody leaves, we know what the COBRA rate is going to be. Got it. Okay. And it also allows us, that's the rate at which we're accruing for points. So, so that's how we post that. Um, we continue to offer health savings account. There's no significant change in that other than now that employees can put in if they have family one at five hundred dollars this year. Um, we can continue to do flex spending and the government graciously has allowed on the medical spending account for us to include that by fifty dollars increase this year. So that's not significant either. Share the savings is exactly the same as that has been in the past. And we have about 200 people who take share the savings every year, and that's significant savings to the organization as we keep those people there. Um, dental plans. We did do a little bit of work around our dental plan this year. So we didn't do anything to do the Dental Care USA, which is basically an HMO dental plan. But for both the dental, the PPO, and the BIA plan, what we talked about is that when an employee goes to a Delta Dental Dentist, there are two types of dentists. One is a premier dentist and one is a PPO dentist. If they go to a PPO dentist, there's approximately a 35% savings. So what we did here is we said, if you go to a PPO dentist, your annual deductible is going to be $35. If you go to a premier dentist, it's going to be a $70 deductible per person. And our hope is, in the educational process through open enrollment, to push people towards the PPO dentist. Not only does their money go farther, but our money goes farther. The other thing that it did, we did increase, was we made it 60% if they take the buyout for orthodontia and left it at 50% if they go to a premier dentist for orthodontia. So that's really only the significant change in the dental. 
no changes to VSP, and we continue to have 75% of our employees pay for and take this voluntary benefit, and it gets utilized at the 98% level. So not only are they paying for it, they're using it every year. There are no, absolutely no changes to our life insurance this year, no changes to long-term disability. Um, the only thing that I don't believe we have a slide in here for is through our employee assistance plan this year, we are going to do a health risk assessment. Voluntary assessment that employees can log on to, and it's from the Mayo Clinic, so it's been fairly well vetted. They can go through and fill out the assessment, and our campaign around that is going to be, if you fill out the assessment this year, you have an opportunity to some free health coaching through MHN. They'll provide them for us for free for the minimal cost that we're paying for the HRA. And then it will set you up for next year when it will help you with whatever new changes happen to come along with the hint that there's going to probably be a contribution starting next year. But we want to get people in the cycle of doing a health risk assessment. And that's great information that we can get from our employees to understand their health risks and vision. All of the information is confidential that comes back to us. We don't get any personal statistical data. Um, our MHN, or our MetLife products remain the same. We haven't made any changes to those. The new product we're offering this year is through Legal Shield. They have been after me for years to offer the product. We finally consented. It's a 100% voluntary product. It's 100% portable. And this is a product we can make available to everybody. Not part of our online enrollment. They all go onto their website. They can fill it out. They send us a monthly file and they pay. So this is something, if you really are concerned about legal issues, they can buy it and have it all done pre um, This is just my normal spiel about consumerism and benefits. Do the legal issues, like, does that insurance cover the whole family? Like, you know, oh, yeah. So if your kid gets into trouble? Yeah. I mean, now that I have an 18-year-old, you can be charged with an adult. Sign up now. Yeah, right? <laughs> Um, we have, and, and just so you know, so our MHN, our EAP, we have an hour every year free of legal advice for every employee. Um, we do the same thing for financial services. They have an hour free every year. Legal, the, through MHN, when you buy the product and you go for legal advice, the only thing they can't use that for is for any advice against their employer. Okay. Now, I don't, I don't know the criteria on legal people, but I suspect that they could probably use it for almost anything. That's great. Well, I have another question. We went past this, and I'm just thinking about something. When a person takes their health assessment, um, is that at all available to their doctor as well? Or is that something that only the employee will receive and their... Yes, a health risk assessment is really just a questionnaire. It's a health risk questionnaire. And so the value of it is for an employee to give themselves their own self-evaluation about where they are. And they get, at the end of the risk assessment, they get some feedback. You know, your weight is too high, you're, you're, you know, what you're talking about, you may be borderline diabetic, all of those kinds of things, and you may see the employee, you may see your doctor. Um, we did, three years ago, 
we did biometrics and health risk assessments. Mm -hmm. We only had about 500 employees participate. Mm -hmm. Out of the employees who were high risk, which was about 75 of them, three followed up. Mm -hmm. And we were paying a lot of money for that service, so we canceled that. Mm -hmm. Because it, there really was no value. And so we're trying to work towards, we do get information back from Kaiser on our population, mm -hmm. and I am working with health comps so that we can get the same kind of demographic information back from our self-funded plan. Because it's interesting to know, you know, if somebody is diagnosed with something, are they following and maintaining, you know, that kind of statistical data, and it helps you with your self-funded plan. And I think that's great. One, one of the things I'm just professionally interested in, but I think this is you know, we're thinking about as you discuss the results of that kind of uh, assessment, it's it's creating this um, uh, culture of health inside our facility that says we are role modeling behavior that we hope you will do as well in your own, you know, uh, pursuit of good health. And what a great way to talk about that. I'm not saying we're going to display scores. I'm just saying that right. we all do it. We all walk around with knowledge, really empowered to say. I am a pre-diabetic, I need to be super careful, um, or whatever it might be. And I love that idea, um, I think I posted out on the Twitter world something like, we need our own sort of health score in order to really make us more conscious of where we stand, and it's hard because it's so convoluted, there's a lot of complex measures, so I really applaud that, thank you. Thank you, uh, you know, and, and just to add to that, that's our wellness program focuses every year on issues that we uncover in the assessment of looking at our population. Um, last year with Bowman College and this year going forward, we were focusing a lot of time with Bowman College on they come on campus and they do classes. And what we have struggled with is we have a pretty high level of adolescent child obesity. So our program for Bowman College right now focuses on family eating, family diet, things that you can take home from those classes and do with your entire family. Um, so we, every year, we're very conscious about what comes out of those studies, what is the information, what are our biggest problems, and how do we address them. Some of them are frustrating, but and we, we don't seem to make any inroads, but we still push at that every year to find a way to, to make inroads on it. Any, and we're obviously going to enroll online. So we will have, we will start our open enrollment in October. The last weeks in October, we will have health fairs on every single campus. And then we start doing what we call enrollment meetings. So we will have my staff out and about in computer rooms on every campus to enroll people all the way to right before Thanksgiving. Any questions? Do you have a cash out benefit for um, employees who are in lieu of benefit? Yes. So, do you yeah. have a That's the sheriff's savings. Right, the sheriff's savings. And do you, I mean, there's no way to track this, and this is just, I can't even think of a question. I just want to make, we want to know that all employees of, who are eligible either through themselves or their spouse or some other means are, are covered. 
They have to provide us documentation. They have coverage somewhere else. Is that right? Absolutely. The only people who, and they still have to provide it, that don't have other coverage is if we have a husband and wife who work for us, um, through all of our contracts they get one coverage. So that means one one spouse elects for the whole family, and the other spouse does not get shared savings. Okay, it used to be that way, but that's you know that's like double living. So, uh, will we? So enrollment closes in November. Correct. Right. So last year you came back, I think in January, the report on on the numbers. Um, so a couple of thoughts. One, yeah, of course, as you know, I love that. We're doing things in-house because it, it's the whole, we're one big family and it's, it's good for our cost. Um, so I, I, I look forward to seeing how we did against Kaiser. Did we, we went from, I think, 54%, 50% to 56% or 54% last well, year. Well, we finally made the switch last year where we have 54% of our employees in our plan. Right. And it's like 45% are in uh, Kaiser and then the rest are in Yeah. So um, I, I, I want to see, I'm hoping we'll still move in that same direction. Me too. Yeah. And I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you've figured out a way to incentivize those who have chosen the majority to, you know, encourage their coworkers to dump Kaiser and come on over. Actually, my staff is currently working on, Jeanette challenged me with, my staff is working on um, a poster and a campaign for choosing freedom of choice. So they're supposed to have some posters when I get back in the office so that we can start looking at them. And alongside of the open enrollment posters, which will go up probably in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start plastering those all over every campus. Awesome. How about this is what I did with the money I saved? There you go. That's another great one. You know? <laughs> just, just one comment on that. I wouldn't anticipate a dramatic you know move to to our self-insured plan until we're until we're able to provide um, better ambulatory access in our in our clinics once we're once we're able to do that once we we're able to you know to impact on the things that are restricting our access and or open more clinics um, we will um, we will be able to um, to increase those numbers a lot. We've started talking about some things that we might we might do, you know, developing um, an affiliation kind of agreement with neighboring counties so we care for for um, their employees that live here. They care for our employees that live in that live in in in, in their county and we're and I believe you you've heard about uh, I can't remember the new name, but the old name was Bacon. You know the uh, the agreement that we're that we're working on that includes John Muir and uh, and um, University UCSF. I think Bacon would be good for personal health support, but anyway, uh, it, it's spelled differently. It's a different Bacon. Regarding that, thanks for reminding me. I wanted to ask that as well. I've put out this concept, and it may be a little radical, but have we approached Alameda County about offering a plan for their employees to save us some money and again expand our family? I mean, we are the county. Uh, has that, I know that may be a little crazy, I mean, but I know that there had been some conversation about that. I mean, the, the idea of getting public employees to choose the public medical delivery system is, to me, you know, 
forward thinking. I, I think there's some um, complicated um, financial and, and structural issues in, involved in that, but um, they, uh, the city of, of Oakland has also asked us if, if, there, if there's a possibility of doing that. We would basically need to, you know, in essence, you know, establish a small, a small health plan because we would have to be able to maintain separate risk pools. So, so it would get it would get pretty complicated. But if we start doing a number of educational sessions for the board moving forward, this might be a good one for us to discuss. Yeah. You know what the what the pluses and minuses what we would we would need to do in order to do that. But so we've thought about it. The city of Oakland has asked already. Who gave that idea? That's so cool. I work there now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just to your point, obviously, uh, uh, the type of thing we would, we would certainly uh, want to think about and pursue where the, where the opportunity makes sense for us. Uh, to that point, aligning you know, the opportunity with the actual capabilities to deliver are, are, are absolutely paramount. So we don't actually you know, you know, messing up what could otherwise be a great opportunity. Uh, one of the ways in which I think, and we'll talk more about this over time, that we can sort of, you know, toe into a world like this is, is to an earlier point about wellness programs. So if we look at, you know, how, how we are uh, performing internally with respect to wellness initiatives, which is something we have quite a bit of opportunity on, uh, there, there's a, there's a uh, thought around or a, a mechanism kind of becoming really good at that and then using that as an entree to kind of just go to various employees, public or private, and say we offer a wellness program and that be an entree to if there's some uh, some ROI there for them to to look at a more expanded uh, possibility or possibility. Sure. Sure. Thanks. There's no more questions, we can move on. Right? Thank you so much and we look forward to hearing the report uh, Thank after enrollment goes. So I also have a worker's phone call. Oh, you're okay. <laughs> still, you still have me. But I brought Greg Stevens up, and Greg is the disability manager. So there's going to be a slide close to the end that I'm going to have him talk through for you so that we can talk about um, the interactive process when we get to the end of the worker's comp claim and we're unable to do something. Um, but I wanted to talk about for 2015, we had some goals around lost days caused by compensable injuries. Um, and I don't know if you remember, because I, but I wanted to remind you that when we did the history last year, we talked about this lost days report that I'm going to show you. And I want to take you back to 2010, when lost days in this organization exceeded over 10,000 annually. So that when we get to where we are today, we can put that in perspective about what it means. Um, we wanted to decrease the return to work timeframes. Sometimes that's an easy thing to do, sometimes it's not so easy dependent upon the injury. And then we take a look at, and I keep, I'll call it throughout here, the top 50%. Those are the departments and areas in the organization that really have the top 50% of compensable injuries every year. So, and those are really the groups and departments that we try to use our resources to target and work with annually to see if we can figure out what the issues are that are going on in those departments and areas. How can we fix it? How can they do better? What education might be needed in those areas? So these are our costs for last year. 
And it isn't, I can't see my own slide, even with my glasses. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
and look at what the issues were. Um, I, I can tell you sometimes we see spikes in those. Um, there are lost days around the time that interns come in, interns and residents come in. Um, sometimes, you know, it could be a change in how things are being done. So that, that's when we look at that top 50%, that's when Greg and his staff go out, have a meeting, talk about what's going on, what's happened, see if there's something we need to change. I can give you an example at Highland in um, EDS, because I think when we look by department, you'll see EDS as one. You know, we have guys working at night, and they're mopping the floor, and they feel like they're the only people over in that where E-Wing is, so they don't put up the signs. Well, if there's a trauma coming in, and residents are over in that wing, hanging out or doing something, they'll come looking through there, and they're running for the ER, and that's what it's looking for. So it's, it's getting people in those habits of doing the right thing all the time. So we, we really take a look at what the incident was, you know, is it preventable? Some are not preventable. Some things just happen. But is there something that can be done and the manager can do it? Any other questions about lost days? Because that's a big one. Other than it's, you don't want to touch it. <laughs> um, here's the top 50%. And this compares from 2014, what I call the results for 2015. Paula, this yep. might be... Um, in the last chart, just in the future, what, what would be helpful would be to see each site, but the, the days per per employees or some kind of... Um, well, we can break it down by department. We have that data. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you can see that Highland has a lot more than Alameda, but Alameda has much, much more than Santa Ana. Santa Ana and Alameda are similarly um, right. staffed, right. so... Yeah. Oh, you mean the number of employees getting Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the ratio. Oh, sure, sure. 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 We can do that. Um, the next one uh, shows you know, the people who were the fiscal year 2014 top 50%, and then comparatively the claims they had in 2015. Um, there was a 20% reduction in that group from year over year. So, so that shows the work that we've done. There are some increases in there. Um, okay. Yeah, it's on us. It's on, it's on their side. Um, nursing administration and housekeeping are, you know, always the ones that are interesting. And ER is always interesting to me. They had an increase of two. That generally surrounds around interns and residents in the ER. Med surge had an increase, and skilled nursing had an increase as well in the B unit and before unit. So the only significance of this to me is to demonstrate the fact that the work that we're doing has had some impact and that we've reduced some of those lines. This is the new group for 2016 and housekeeping tops the list. Again, nursing at John George is at the top of the list and skilled nursing is at the top of the list in B2. None of those are a surprise to us just based upon what we know is going on. Housekeeping just generally because we're talking about the number of accidents that they have okay, and, and the things that they're doing. I gave you a listing that for three years shows you the top five claim categories. And to me, the significance around this 
is the struck by an individual or person is always at the top of our list. And I suspect will always be at the top of our list. Um, particularly John George and some of the clientele at skilled nursing. Some of those workers' comp claims. And the worst workers' comp claims that we generally have have to do with assaults. Um, they generally tend to be. Um, the other one I found interesting is the lifting. Back in 2013, it was the second most one. When you get to the next year, 2014, there were only 29, so it's still second. And then now, there's still the same number of incidents, but it's the fifth one. So when we look at lifting, that goes to patient-safe handling, and that's an initiative that's ongoing with nursing and trying to get everything in place on education and lifting for patient-safe handling. So I'm hoping that by next year, when we sit and do this report, that won't be on the list. That's my hope. So now I'm going to have Greg walk you through it. And the reason that I brought Greg today is, is that there was a conversation at the July uh, meeting that centered around when employees got to a certain point that we pushed them out of the organization and prevented them from collecting their retirement. So first of all, I want to have Greg go through this process, and then I'll give you the statistical data of what happens to people in the process. Good evening. Let's get in here. So I tell our managers when an injury happens, there's usually two main things that, that need to occur, and what needs to occur immediately is first assessing the employee whether or not they're in need of medical treatment. And there's a few ways to go about that. They can, if the hour, if our employee health is open, they can go visit our employee health, get seen, and if it's medical beyond employee health, they refer them to one of our occupational medicine clinics that's within our managed provider network. That's one, is taking care of the employee, making sure they're getting the treatment they need. Two is filing a claim, and in order to file the claim, we've really simplified it. It's calling an 800 number. The employee or the manager can call it in 24-7, any day of the week, uh, and the claim is instantly filed, which really triggers a process for me and my team, in which we provide the employee the state form, the DWC-1. Uh, we also get the supervisor's report over to the, the manager for them to be fully aware of the injury and give us their feedback about what they're going to do next or what, and whether they're going to have a remedy for what just happened. It's a way of reconciling what did we do here, what did we do wrong, what, we, what can we do right next time. So those those two things happen, and typically what happens, you can see a, a slide coming up, the person goes back to work fairly quickly after that. Uh, if they do not, they typically will get a note from their doctor saying, go back to modified duty, and um, myself and John Dixon, who works with me, will work diligently to get them back to the home department and make sure that those restrictions are met their manager. If the manager says no, we're going to go to another department and say, you know, 
home department, you had your shot, but we want to get this employee back to work, and we're going to bring them to maybe a, a clinic to do clerical work, something within their restrictions. Um, while they're on modified duty, the goal is, is to keep the modified duty temporary, and I would stress the word temporary because it doesn't become their new job. It's a temporary assignment while they get well. So while they're within their temporary modified duty, they're still receiving ongoing medical treatment with the goal of getting back to full duty. So we do have cases where permanent restrictions happen. Uh, and that's where my interactive process with the employee then takes place. And I can tell you it's it's very tricky at that point to get folks back to work. But, um, what happens at that point, and one example of a success story would be a, a nursing assistant that I worked with who really was very few transferable skills for work. Was, all she knows is CNA work. That's all she's done for 20 years. Really found that there's no other alternative work for her. And we, we brainstormed getting her work hardening, which is, I would say, aggressive physical therapy. She had a shoulder injury. And working her um, within that physical therapy program for a four-week period and were able to get her back to full duty. She was a very highly motivated employee. That's not always the case. Uh, but she was very diligent, and I, I give her all the credit for that. It was, uh, it was a very good success story for her. A lot of times what happens is, on the not-so-good side of it, is that an employee will be hurt on the job. For instance, a nurse at John George will be assaulted. Uh, there's sometimes a psychological component, many times a psychological component, but it also could be an orthopedic injury that occurs. And I'm thinking of a particular nurse who was really precluded from returning to John George. We spent 60 plus days trying to find her work in another facility. She really had been working in psych nursing for a number of years, so she really didn't have floor nursing experience she was unable to return to work. So at that point, it's a different discussion. At that point, I'm talking to her about disability retirement through ACERA. I'm talking to her about long-term disability and as wage replacement at that point. Um, and so those are tricky discussions, but it's, those are benefits that our folks are entitled to when they get to that very difficult point. And um, we spend a lot of time with people in, in those areas, but I, I think it's it's important to note that it's it's very much a process. And I think the next what the next slide is going to illustrate for everyone is most of our folks return to work after injury. With regard to um, the, the slides that you've shown and returning to work, it, the, the, not the certificated so much and the, the, the nurses who are um, pediatric or psych or, or trained in a certain specialty that may not go back there or, or a nurse, um, certified nurse assistant or something like that, but 
that housekeeping or dietary or others who are injured, is there a way to provide modified duty in the same position, in the same site, and then just have some assistance or have some support for them? I'm thinking especially of housekeeping probably and um, other... When you say assistance, what... Well, if someone gets injured by because they're um, moving furniture or doing setups or something like that, and then they they hurt a, a lifting injury or an orthopedic injury, then can they come back um, to modify duty for some long-term period of time and just have some support from another person in the department? So, we it's up to the manager to modify duty. And we do have in each contract a restriction on how much modified duties one can do. So there is a restriction in all of the MOU contracts that talks to how many days they can have a modified duty. So, so six, six months maximum, which is in the SEIU MOUs and in AHS policies. Our intent always in modified duties to bring them back to their own department. People do much better, get back to work faster. And, and are healthier if they come back to work quickly. Um, I, I think it's really important to understand that part of what, what Greg was expressing is when we get to that interactive process, it's not a, so here you go, we're done, we'll see you later. We look at that employee, we want to know are they in a SARA? You know, do they have long-term or short-term disability? And, and so we hold their hand through that process as well. We have had people where we have worked with them for six or seven months just to get them through the ACERA disability process to make sure that Greg's staff and my staff work together on a long-term disability plan. So when somebody gets to that point, it's not like we're dumping them off. We're continuing to work with them and to hold their hand through that process. So to me, this is the important statistic. When you look at this, so we had total claims last year of 408 claims. 300, it affected 371 employees, so some employees had multiple claims. Of that, 347 of them are back to work full-time regularly. So that's 94% of the employees who get hurt from back to work. Eight of them left their job and they returned by a settlement, not necessarily related to the workers' comp claim. You must know and understand that we have workers' comp claims that occur after you have given somebody a final warning. I personally had an employee that we gave her a final warning to walk in the parking lot and fell. So, and I can tell you that my experience with that was she had an injury to her leg, but the next morning when I came to work, she was holding the cane the doctor gave to her in the air as she crawled over the fence to walk up the pathway. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> Not all of them are like that, but that one was. Okay. I did call her out on it and said, when the doctor gives you a cane, it's best if you put it on the ground. It works better. Of those claims, four of them retired, which was 1%. 10 resigned, that's 3%. Again, that's not reflective of did it have anything to do with the workers' comp plan or not. And two of them were turned for other issues, which would have been disciplinary issues. So 1%. But I think that 94% is the number that's most important. So with regard to that, this chart in particular, of the 408 total claims of the 371 employees, 
and, and this is just goes to the whole issue of disability claims. Is there any, have, do we have actions from employees because of disability that is not, how often do employees hire a, a disability attorney to represent them? A workers' comp claims happens frequently. Um, one of the things that we're working with our workers' comp third-party administrator on is that we had an, an external audit done of our claims. We have that done every year. Um, and one of the things that was found in that audit was the follow-up and communication piece and how important that is. And clearly, if we are in touch and engaged with the employee during the workers' comp process, they are less likely to litigate the claim. They are less likely to get an attorney. So of those, of these claims, there were no on our open, No, on our open, on these claims... Or would that be the 10, possibly, so, who resigned, who had a payout, or...? No, it could, it could even be somebody who's returned to work. Okay. It could even be somebody. 41% of our claims are litigated. Okay. Yeah. Which is a high number. Is a high number. Which is, when we work with our TPA, that's what we're working towards that communication piece and how The other in communication piece that, and in particular, I have been working with nursing on, is there a thought process that when an employee gets injured, they somehow belong to workers' comp totally. And so our managers stop communicating with them. When an employee is at a workers' comp claim or they are on a leave of absence, they still belong to the home department. And so we're trying to coach them through. It's okay to pick up the phone and say, how are you doing and what's going on if they're not at work. You can't ask details about the injury you can't ask what the doctor said, but you can call and see how they're personally doing. And that's the coaching that needs to take place internally. Because both from the TPA and from our standpoint, we need to be in contact with the, with the employee through the process. I have a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be careful here. <laughs> so you mentioned a moment ago that we have a high rate employees that choose to litigate the workers' problem, so I got that. How about the total number of claims? Do you know where we rank compared to other facilities, or are we high, low? It's a, that's a really good question, and we can we can get that, but I don't I don't have the answer. Okay. Yeah, but we can certainly find out. Okay. We can get some benchmarks. This is for data. the entire system, right? Right. Yeah. Right. 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 We can get yeah. This is for the whole system. Uh, my last slide just talks about you know, where we're going forward. We're working really hard at integrating with employee health. We want to work towards our own occupational health center. We're working really hard at including wellness in that process, and that goes to all those things we've talked about. You know, the more people are working together and working towards their own, their own wellness, and we include safety in that. And then we just want to continue to work with the system to improve employee and patient safety. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry, Mr. Chair. I, I was actually going to compliment uh, your, your, uh, your listing of the two things that happened. You started off with uh, employee either going to, uh, um, to uh, say, employee health or to one of the contracted uh, occupational health providers. I thought you were going to say employee health or the emergency room. 
That is a common we only use the emergency room in off hours. No, so it, is, it is an off hour thing. So, so what I was going to ask you then, because you did not say it, I assume then our, our contracted occupational health providers have similar hours as our, our employee health centers. So, or, so we do actually say in after hour situations that the emergency room is a place where people need to go for immediate physical treatment. Care. We do say, so yeah, that's. That's the last option, but you know we're a 24-7 operation, so and a lot of weird things happen in the middle of the night, so we, they do have the ED option. Just wanted to make sure. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I have a question. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's Um, living wage? Uh, 
um, issue because I, it just occurred to me in thinking of Alameda, which doesn't have a living wage, obviously. But um, I think this came up during our budget conversation about right. potential need. But I think most of our employees are well above the open minimum wage. Yes. Well, then just this direction, I guess that would be since our employees for the organization, if you could just do a little research, the employees for the organization that don't work here in Oakland may be paying at the clinics the um, and in Alameda, at the, especially at the long-term care facilities. I'm just wondering if they are all have to be paid at the living wage. They're all above those, those rates. Okay, good. Including at the Even at water's nursing head? facilities <laughs> at, at water's head. We, we did have to raise, raise some of those um, salaries already because we were unable you know, to retain um, you know, anyone to cook food for the residents and, and several other things. The salaries were um, incredibly low. I didn't know that people worked for those salaries. One of the areas where, where I've noticed, uh, I've been in San Francisco when the living, I think one of the living wage ordinance was uh, put in place was uh, working with contract vendors, particularly those that are multi-state. Uh, so I, want, I, don't, I don't know if Oakland's was relatively recent, but I yeah, wonder. Yeah, was there an uh, analysis done on contract employees uh, to that end and whether there is an expectation that uh, when we work with vendors for services, where they get that applies to them. Um, well, I can say that the city of Oakland contractors, it, 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 it's, it's, there's discretion and there's exemptions. And Mike, you probably know this as well. The city, this is for um, Oakland-based organizations that um, provide benefits to their employees. They have to have a minimum wage. And, and for full-time employees, they also have to provide um, sick leave. And but I don't uh, as in the contracts that I manage for contractors from the city of Oakland, often um, the subcontractors are not the, the information is not provided for all subcontractors. So the, is there an exemption to when you're contracting with an organization that's not based in Oakland uh, to, to the living wage I, I don't I don't know about the about the contracts. I it, it would make sense for us to check with the with the with our contracting department and find out you know what the what the procedures are. So my understanding of the law is that if you, if, if you have employees whose primary location is in Oakland, they are subject to the Oakland ordinance, both for sick leave and for So so those that's I that's my understanding of how it works in San Francisco. So even if you were a a uh, entity not based here who has employees all over the right. state or the country, those employees who were home based right. in the city mm -hmm. yeah. were, were subject to it. Right. Is, that, is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if we need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we self adjourn the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> we adjourn the meeting. <laughs> Second. Uh, we need the, uh, is, is there any report necessary from our general counsel? Yes, yes. and uh, the committee made a closed session and uh, took no action. Uh, there needs to be a report, so that's the